Oh, I am so ready for this. Welcome in, everybody. We are going to look at one of the strangest chapters in all the Bible. We're talking about 1 Kings chapter 13, and I'm so glad that you're here for the deep dive Bible study as we continue looking at 1 and 2 Kings and the Kings of Compromise. Before we get started, let's pray. Father God, we ask that you speak to us. May this content be what you want it to be. May our hearts be changed and transformed, and may our eyes see Jesus. In his name we pray, and amen, and amen, amen. God bless you. Let's get started. Deep Dive Bible Study, Kings of Compromise, Part 13. I am your host, Tim Hatch. This is Tim Hatch Live. Would you please click that subscribe button if this content blesses you? Click the like button either way. I am not fussy. But we are, like I said, in 1 Kings chapter 13, one of the strangest chapters If you read this chapter before you go any further, like if you're listening to this beyond the live moment on YouTube or in your podcast app, and if you just press pause and go read the chapter and then come back, you're going to be like, okay, what on earth is that about? It is almost hard to believe that this is in the Bible and it's confusing and I get it. And the reason why it's confusing is because 1 Kings chapter 13 is a picture for us of what the nation of Israel is becoming as it slowly but surely descends from its pinnacle under the godly wisdom of Solomon and his predecessor, his father, King David. You see, we are seeing this right now in our culture, in our generation. We are seeing the spiritual decay of our country, of our world, and Like I've said before, and really it is the premise for this entire study, what we are seeing now, we have seen before. It's happened before. First Kings and Second Kings are kind of the roadmap of where we're going. And so First Kings chapter 13 is confusing because the spiritual condition of a country as it decays becomes confusing. Hear that again. As a country decays spiritually, it becomes confusing. And that's why these stories are in the Bible for us so that we can learn that we're not the only ones this has ever happened to. And then how do we respond to it? How do we live faithfully in a time of spiritual confusion? And so like we do every week, two parts, used to be three, but we knocked out one part. I don't know if you noticed, two parts to the uh, podcast, the Bible study that we do through the text and then tap in truth. So let's get into it through the text. All right, open up your Bibles and let's get to 1 Kings chapter 13. Let me start, though, by giving you kind of like the premise for what we're about to talk about. We're we're going to talk about the idea of being spiritual but not religious. Uh, I like to pick and choose what I believe and what is good for me and what's true for me. And I don't like to, you know, tie myself down to any kind of organized religion or faith system or rigid structure based on ritualism and tradition. You know, that's very popular in our our day. It's been very popular for almost two decades in America. It's very popular with young people because young people don't like the older people to tell them what to do. And so they think they're smarter than the older people. And so they want to do their own thing. And so they like to eschew what the old people tell them. And so that's where they get spiritual, not religious. 
And some people also who are in the faith need to listen to another lesson from 1 Kings chapter 13 that we're going to see here. And, and that is this lesson. The Lord told me to tell you not to listen to those who say, the Lord told me to tell you. <laughs> If you're watching this on YouTube, it's always a better experience. But you know that phrase? Have you ever heard that phrase in the church? Uh, let me know in the comments below or to the right if you've ever heard that phrase. The Lord told me to tell you. When I was a youth minister, and I share this story with my church all the time. When I was a youth minister, uh, there was this guy who's about, I don't know, I want to say 40 years old. And he would go up to all the young girls in church and he would say, the Lord told me to tell you that you're going to be my wife. And he would use this line to kind of manipulate, spiritually manipulate these young, impressionable girls. And most of them were like, stick it, bro. They weren't, any, they weren't having any of it. But, but there can be in the church, and I have experienced it, and I've had people try to do this to me. They try to tell me that the Lord told them to tell me. And I'm always like, well, okay, first off, number one, why didn't he tell me? Number two, is what you're telling me rooted in the word of God? Or is it just, you know, indigestion from the burrito that you had for lunch? Or are you a spiritual leader that has been appointed by my local assembly? And there has been a uh, compounding of evidence and testimony to the fact that you are a spiritual leader in that local assembly. Because when that is the case... Then I'm open to the idea of the Lord told you to tell me. But when that is not the case, when you're not a, a selected or appointed or ordained spiritual leader in a local assembly, when you are outside of the bounds of scripture, right? When I don't know you, the Lord told me to tell you is a red flag for my life and for my ears. If I hear that, I run. I don't even listen. <clears throat> I have had people try to do this to me and I've just told them, no, I don't want to hear it. Uh, I've had people try to hand me letters you know, the letters that I, this happens on a, on a regular basis to pastors. We get letters from the disappointed congregant who wants us to, I don't know, preach something or do something that they saw in another church or they saw on TBN or they saw another, you know, minister do. And so now they want us to do it. And why aren't we listening to the voice of the Lord? And here's a big, long letter for why their voice is more important than my voice and why I should be listening to them. Right. The Lord told me to tell you it is a dangerous, manipulative tactic in the church. And I would say that it is the offspring of a lack of true spiritual authority, clarity, and responsibility around the Word of God. When you don't have clarity, authority, and responsibility to the Word of God, it opens the door for self-appointed prophets to just step up to anybody randomly and say, the Lord told me to tell you. So that is what today is about. The Lord told me to tell you, not to listen to those who tell you. The Lord told me to tell you. <laughs> and I, I know I premised that statement with the Lord told me to tell you because it's plain words. Let's review before we go any further. Let's review where Jeroboam and the kingdom of Israel is in 1 Kings chapter 13 by looking once more at 1 Kings chapter 12. I don't want to spend too much time here, but I do want to spend a little bit of time here. I want to remind you of where Jeroboam, remember Jeroboam was given the 10 northern tribes of Israel, Rehoboam. He was given uh, Judah and parts of Benjamin. Parts of Benjamin go to the north. So the nation of Israel is divided. The nation that, that David uh, coalesced and brought together and, and, and Solomon blessed and, and, and built up, that kingdom has now had a civil discord. Ten northern tribes we call from this point forward Israel. Two southern tribes we call from this point Judah. Judah will be the longer, more faithful kingdom. Israel will be the more pagan, godless kingdom. And it is a picture of the church. It's a picture of the fact that in every generation, there is a smaller contingent of faithful believers chosen by the Lord. And there is this false segment of the church that is not with the Lord. They're pagan. They pick and choose what they want to believe. They don't submit to spiritual authority and they follow their hearts. 
and they ultimately end up condemned. And that is where Jeroboam has led the 10 northern tribes. And so let's just review real quick in 1 Kings chapter 12 what transpired. Remember, it says in verse 28 that he took counsel. And it doesn't say he took counsel with anyone. He just took counsel with himself. He thought to himself, he said, hey, this is what I think is right. And he said, I'm going to make two calves of gold. Later on, it says, and he made temples on high places. And he appointed a feast, verse 32, on the 15th day of the eighth month. That is one month later than the southern uh, kingdom was appointed. That Israel was commanded according to the law from Leviticus. So he, he sets his own dates for spiritual celebrations. He makes his own temples. He made a temple, an altar. He makes his own altars. He makes the altar in Bethel. Uh, and then he's doing all this and notice that last little statement there in verse 33 that he had devised from his own heart. He was the consummate. I'm just going to follow my heart believer. I'm just going to go with what feels good inside because what feels good inside must be true. This is anathema. This is a false gospel. This is a very popular gospel and it is a, con a condemning gospel. It cannot save you. Your heart is not to be trusted. My heart is not to be trusted. God's word is to be trusted. He instituted a feast as well. So you see all these things. It was, it's all about Jeroboam. What Jeroboam wants, what Jeroboam wants to make, what Jeroboam, how Jeroboam wants to lead the kingdom of Israel. And all the while, what I really think about when I see this picture is it's a picture of what is very popular in our world today. I'm spiritual, not religious. I'm spiritual. I'm not religious. I don't like formality. I don't like ritual pastor. And so I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do what I like and kind of ignore the rest. It's a self-made religion. Jeroboam self-made religion. He made his own idols. He catered to people's wants. He made it anyone who wanted to be one. He made them a priest, which if you remember from the law, if you know anything about the law, is very particular. God is very particular that the line of Aaron within the Levite, the tribe of Levi is the priestly family and that family alone is the high priestly family. And so not anyone could be a priest under the law of God. And so Jeroboam is ignoring that and anybody can be a priest. He established his own feast days and he did this. And most notably, you got to realize this to establish his own kingdom. He wanted to establish his own kingdom. He wanted to protect himself. He wanted to glorify himself. He wanted to promote himself. This idea, spiritual, not religious, it caters to your ego. It caters to that primal ambition that is resident in everyone. I want to be in charge. And it is so popular. I cannot tell you how important it is that you lean in with me here to discover the dangers of the spiritual, not religious creed. So when we talk about spiritual and religious, let's take a look at those two things because I'm not a, I'm not a fan of... Um, dogmatic, lifeless, spiritless religion. You could have, okay, doctrines and dogmas and no life. You could have a form of religious observance, but no life in you. But when I'm saying spiritual, not religious, I'm talking about the, the structural, communal, and regular, and if you would even go as far as to say sacramental aspects of belonging to the church, the, the organized faith that God has given to the body, God has given to the world with things such as pastors and teachers and prophets and evangelists and apostles, with the word of God as our authority, with the Holy Spirit leading us, with elders 
in the local assemblies, providing spiritual accountability to those people. So when I say religion, I don't want to talk about that dead, lifeless religion that even Jesus himself condemned, but I am talking about the structural uh, formality of the church, which if you don't have form, you don't have a body. Your body, the, the, the kingdom of God is related to, the church is related to as a body in the, in the, in the New Testament. And the reason why is because it's a picture. The, the human body has a structure. It's the skeletal system. But then it also has, you know, muscles and tendons and skin and blood and, and nerve endings and all those kind of things that bring it life. So too, the church has a structure, a skeletal system. There are things that we do, th- practices. Uh, there are appointments. There are offices in the church. And these things give structure to the church so that the church can have the life of the spirit, the blood, if you will, of the spirit, the life of the blood in the, in the, in the body. So when we talk about the spiritual, not religious creed, let me just make sure that we're understanding the two difference, the two differences. Religion is based on doctrines, dogmas, and ritual practices, right? And spirituality in the modern vernacular is coming from the heart, feeling oriented, experience oriented. This is what I feel God is like. I feel like this is what God is saying. I feel like this is what I believe. Well, okay, your feelings are not real. Whatever you feel is not real. I say that to my church all the time. Whatever you feel is not real. It's just a feeling and it's temporary and it comes and it goes. Now, the thing about that spirituality, the why it's so appealing is because it's all about your feeling. It's all about you. It's a self-made, self-serving religious system that is doomed to fail because your feelings are temporary. What you, what, what's in your heart right now, I guarantee you, just give it about a week or a month or a year or a decade, it will not be in your heart then. And <laughs> another thing, the spiritual uh, desires of today will be shaped largely by your culture, by your community, by the people that are around you. And so a lot of times, these people who say that they're spiritual as if they're novel and they're unique, they're really just following a whole bunch of other people's, you know, ideas of what spirituality should be. They're not shaped by themselves or their heart. They're shaped by the influences of culture. So the point that I'm trying to make ultimately, though, is that spiritual, uh, self-made, self-serving faith systems are doomed to fail. They don't last because feelings don't last. People don't last. Last, Your heart doesn't last. And even what you believe and think right now doesn't last. You're going to change. You're going to change. You're going to grow up. Life is going to go a different way. And whatever you thought was cool and hip and original in your 20s is old-fashioned and fuddy-duddy in your 40s. And someday there's going to be a different set of people in your life that are going to shape you in a different way. And if you don't have, if you don't have a foundation rooted on the faith, what Jude calls the faith once delivered for the saints you will be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And as Ephesians 4 says, every cunning and craftiness of man. Avoid this. Avoid this like the plague. Anybody can look on a, anybody can sit on a beach and look religious and spiritual. I call it Burger King faith. Have it your way. (laughs) Sitting on the beach, if you're watching on YouTube, you got to watch this show on YouTube sometimes because I've got this picture of a guy sitting on a beach with his hands held in a prayerful uh, posture and he's got a little bit of a beer gut and he's half naked and (laughs) he just, he looks so hip. Like I could just see this guy sitting on the beaches of California or Florida somewhere. Just I'm spiritual. I'm not religious. I do spirituality. And I thought like the spiritual, not religious creed, I've got it summed up for you and warning. This might pinch. This might pinch a little bit. 
what is the spiritual not religious creed? And I, I've kind of created this myself. No, not kind of. I have created this myself. Here's, here's the doctrinal statement of the spiritual not religious creed. Are you ready for it? Here it goes. I'll have the forgiveness Jesus gives, the good karma Buddha offers, the reincarnation Hindu prom Hinduism promises in case I mess this life up. And I'll also have the multiple wives Islam or Mormonism allows. I'll have a side of charismatic happy feelings when I worship, the totally authentic relationships of a non-denominational small group, the positive reinforcement from Joel Osteen, the motivation of T.D. Jakes, I'll take the tolerance of Oprah, the beauty of the Catholic Church architecture, the coffee cafe of the Calvary Chapel Church, and the go-with-culture go doctrine of the United Methodists and or Episcopalians. In other words, I'll have it my way. I don't want conviction or accountability. I don't want to be asked to sacrifice or serve. Don't ask me to give my money or I'm leaving. Don't challenge my cherished sins. After all, I'm not as bad as other people. I'll come to church when nothing else is going on. And when I, and when I show up, I expect the service to end on time, the kids' ministry to bless my children, and everyone to know my name. That, my friends, is the spiritual, not religious creed. <laughs> it is so popular, it is not funny. So, with that in mind, let's get into the text of 1 Kings chapter 13 and reading from verse 1 to this, about this really strange story. That's going to speak to all this. So hang tight. Verse one. And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Now Bethel is where Jeroboam has one of his altars and one of his golden calves erected for the people to sacrifice and worship. It says this, Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name. And he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day saying, this is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. Okay, so what's happening so far? Jeroboam is about to inaugurate or initiate sacrifices on this offering on this altar that he has built for himself. And a guy comes from Judah. Remember the southern kingdom of Judah, the two tribes, the more faithful line of David tribe, a prophet comes from there to the northern area of worship. Bethel's to the south. Dan is to the north, but Bethel's in the south of the northern tribe. And he prophesies and he says, look, God is not happy with this. And he's going to raise up. He's going to raise up a, a, a king named Josiah. And Josiah is named here. And by the way, it'll be 300 years before you see Josiah show up. Josiah will come along. He will be from the tribe of David. He will be in the lineage of David. In other words, the true son of David is going to come and destroy this altar that you have set up, Jeroboam. Now that has huge ramifications for us in our modern age. We look at our world and we see the confusion, the spiritual deprivation, the, spiritual, the spiritualization of everything. People can worship whatever they want. Uh, one of the greatest books I ever read was by Ross Duthit of the New York Times. It's called A Nation of Heretics. And he talks about how because Christianity has kind of been sidelined and marginalized, everybody is picking and choosing what they want to believe and we're just becoming a nation of heretics. And that's exactly what's happening right now. Here's the, here's the reality. What First Kings chapter 13 is telling us is that the true son of David is going to come and destroy all of that. Whatever mankind builds up in his own imagination as to what he's going to do and how he's going to believe that is not rooted in the true word of God, it will come crashing down. Now, there's something true about prophecy here that you've got to see and that you're going to see an immediate fulfillment of the prophecy and then you're going to see a later fulfillment. So he talks about the fact that the, the king will come, he will sacrifice on the altar, the priests uh, of the high places who make offerings. 
And we're just going to see in just a moment that the altar will be torn down. That's the immediate fulfillment of the prophecy, but there will be a 300 years later fulfillment of the prophecy. And this is teaching us about biblical prophecy that you have to understand if you're going to read the Bible rightly. When you read biblical prophecy, there is always an immediate fulfillment, but then there is also an ultimate fulfillment. So the example that I can give you is when Moses tells the people of Israel that the Lord shall raise up from among you a, a man, a prophet from amongst your own midst, and it is he you shall listen to, and he will lead you back to me. Well, the immediate fulfillment, if you will, the short-term fulfillment of that prophecy is Samuel, who becomes the true first prophet of Israel after the age of the judges. But the ultimate fulfillment of that is who? Is Jesus Christ. Same thing with Elijah. Elijah pulls the hearts of God's people back to himself. But even Jesus says that Elijah, the prophecy of Malachi is pointing back to Elijah, who is actually fulfilled in the person of John the Baptist. Or when Isaiah prophesies that the virgin shall give birth. Okay, well, that was also, it was talking about in the immediate, in Isaiah's generation, 900, 800 years BC, about the son of Ahaz who will be born. But it is ultimately fulfilled in the son of Mary who will be born. So, Prophecy in scripture always has an immediate fulfillment and then an ultimate fulfillment. You have to understand that, and that this passage actually is kind of like a test case, the, the proof case for that. So God's judgment is sure. That's what he's saying here. And some of it's going to happen now. We're going to get a taste of it now, and we're going to, get the, going to get the fulfillment of it later. I bring you back to our study in the book of Romans, chapter 1, where it says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who suppress the word, who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. Well, immediately we're going to see sexual immorality, barbarianism, hateful discord, you know, people will be brute beasts. That's all at the end of Romans chapter one. Well, that's the immediate judgment of God, but there's going to come in Revelation an ultimate judgment of God, you see. And that is exactly what we are reading here in 1 Kings chapter 13. Notice, okay, the response of Jeroboam to the prophecy against the altar that he just got done building, verse four. And when the king heard this, when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried out against the altar of Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar saying, seize him. Notice the intolerance of people who are spiritual, not religious. They want spirituality on their own terms. You know you are possibly spiritual, not religious, when you have a whole bunch of intolerance for anyone who challenges you. Oh, I don't like being told that I'm wrong. Yeah, you're spiritual, not religious. Congratulations, you're a normal human being. You're not novel, right? So <laughs> Jeroboam sees him. <clears throat> he wants him arrested. And the scripture says, and his hand which he stretched out against him dried up so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar was also torn down and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign that the man of God, the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. So does that mean that the altar was torn down by the people who were following Jeroboam or did the, did the Lord supernaturally tear down the altar? We are not given those details. We're just given a preview of coming attractions of God's judgment over this self-made, self-serving religious system that Jeroboam has instituted in the land of Israel. But Jeroboam is angry. That's, that's the first response of people who are spiritual, not religious. Because spiritual, not religious belief roots itself in your feelings, in your heart, in your experiences, well, to be challenged that those things might not be right is to confront you with the reality that your heart is not necessarily true, your feelings are not necessarily real, and your experiences, as valid and, and factual as they may be, might not be 
the exact, if you will, truth of life. And so when people get that confrontation, this, this should happen, by the way, in every church in America when the gospel is preached, that some people hear it and they are hatefully angry. They gnash their teeth. And it happens in my church. People get up and leave. That should happen. I mean, we don't, we don't, get, we don't want that to happen. We don't want to celebrate it, but it should happen when the truth is spoken. So Jeroboam does not want to hear it. It's hard. It's hard to hear that you're a sinner, that your heart is actually lying to you, that your feelings and experiences are not gospel truth. And that, that truth is getting harder and harder to hear in America 2023. How dare you challenge my experience? How dare you? You, don't, you didn't walk in my shoes, so therefore you cannot speak to my reality. What, where does that come from? That is just... That is just uh, self-serving spiritualization. That is all it is. It is just the human flat, the human heart exalting itself above everybody else and every other authority. That's where we are in today's world. That's where they were in first Kings chapter 13. Let's continue. Verse six. And the king said to the man of God, entreat now the favor of the Lord, your God and pray for me. Look, notice how he quickly like just repents. He's, his arm is either um, spazzing or Maybe it's leprous or it's just limp or whatever or whatever. He can't use it. So he says, he says, pray for me, like pray for me that my hand might be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord and the king's hand was restored to him and became as it was before. Let me just stop here and just say there is a false search for God in everyone. And that false search for God is God fix this. That's a false search for God. You go to church because you are lonely. You want a husband. So you go to church, find a husband. And as soon as you get the husband, you're out of church. Or you go to church because you hit rock bottom financially and you go to church and then the economy turns around and you get a new job and suddenly you're financially secure and so you stop going to church. That is false spirituality. That's exactly what we see here in Jeroboam. I remember the Sunday after 9-11. I still remember to this day, churches were packed across America. People coming and saying, please fix this. What's going on? I, I need, I just need a little bit of peace here. I mean, I'm not really interested in God. I just want to know that he's not going to kill me today. Like that is false spirituality. It's false returning to God. That's exactly what happens to Jeroboam here. It is another sign of the spiritual, not religious crowd. Let's go on. Verse seven. And the king said to the man of God, come home with me and refresh yourself and I'll give you a reward. And the man of God said to the king, now listen to his standard standard here. If you give me half your house, I will not go in and with you. And I will not eat bread or drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord. By the way, one of the key phrases 11 times. That word of the Lord phrase shows up in this text, okay? So it was commanded me by the word of the Lord saying, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way he came to Bethel. So what does the king do? He says, listen, I, I got a reward for you. Thank you. I think what Jeroboam was trying to do is he's like, hey, we need a good priest around here. You seem to know what you're doing. God seems to listen to you. I'd love to leverage you for my kingdom. That's exactly what we see here in Jeroboam. Self-serving, spiritual, not religious people love to leverage the things of God, the church, for their own advantage. There are a host of self-proclaimed spiritual gurus that do this all the time. They sell books. They hold conferences. They have YouTube channels. <laughs> Not this guy, but other guys. <laughs> and they have all kinds of, you know, spiritual products, right? They're like a spiritual Walmart. Come to me and I'll give you everything you need. Come, come, your one-stop shop for everything spiritual. And they come to the church and they leverage the body of Christ for their own advantage. I, I'd love you to be part of what I'm doing. 
I love you. You're going to be what I'm, I'm being. You have to be careful. You have to be careful about this because you can't, it could get to the point where you're following the ambitions of a self-proclaimed spiritual guru and not the word of the living God. The prophet says, I'm not doing it. I'm not coming because it was commanded by the word of the Lord that I should not even eat with you. By the way, let me say something about this that you need to listen to. We are warned in scripture against one group of people in particular. And Christians, listen, because some of you are still not going to get this, even if I say it right now. You are not warned against hanging out with non-believers. You are not warned against hanging out with lost people. Do you know who you're warned against hanging out with? False believers. Believers in name only. Christians who profess a spirituality, but they do not live it. They do not actually practice it. They do not want to repent. They do not want to follow God. They do not want to seek him. They want to see God serve them. They don't want to serve God. They have the spiritual, not religious creed that we talked about earlier. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. What does Paul say to the church in Corinth? He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexual moral of this world or the greed or the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. You need to leave the world if you were going to have to cut those people off. He says, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to what? Eat with such a one. So, so again, back to verse 10, not at all. <laughs> not at all meaning the, the fornicators of this world or the greedy or the swindler. You got to do business with them. You can't leave the world. But he is saying when someone says they're a brother or a sister in Christ and they, like, they look more like the world than, by, than like Christ, get away from them. There are other Christians, there are other scriptures that support this. Let's see if we can go there. Let's go to first, uh, let's go to Timothy, second Timothy chapter three, but understand this in the last days, there will come difficult times. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive. Okay. Notice skipping down verse five, having the appearance of godliness, but, de but denying his power, Ab avoid such people. These are spiritual people. These are Christian. These are churchgoers. That he's talking about. Avoid them. Don't hang out with them. We can go to Jude. The whole book of Jude, by the way, is a warning against the people who slip in to the church and they don't surrender their life. They don't live a repentant life. It says they rely on their dreams. They defile the flesh. They reject authority. They blaspheme glorious ones. Uh, he goes on, they, they blaspheme what they don't understand. They would be destroyed. Uh, woe to them. They've walked in the way of Cain. They've abandoned themselves for the sake of Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These were all people who were part of the move of God who wanted the move of God to serve them. They didn't want to serve the move of God. Cain, Balaam, Korah. Then it says this, uh, they are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, swept, swept along by winds, fruitless trees and laid on twice dead, uprooted wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. False believers, people who sneak into the church and expect the church to serve their needs. That is what, that is the spiritual uh, condition of the Jeroboam kingdom. And that is the spiritual condition, unfortunately, of much of modern Western Christianity. We have to avoid it. We have to be aware of it. We have to avoid it. Verse 11, the story takes a radical shift. Look at this. Now an old prophet lived in Bethel. Now Bethel again is in the North and it acknowledges that this man is an old prophet. 
So he's in the northern kingdom where Jeroboam is reigning. And his sons came and told him all that the man of God had done in the day, that day in Bethel. They also told their father the words that he had spoken to the king. And the father said to them, which way did he go? And his son showed him the way that the man of God came from Judah had gone. That came from Judah had gone. And he said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him and he mounted it. And he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said, and he said to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. So this guy is a true, make no mistake, he's named as a prophet, but now he's going to do something that's very unprofit-ish. Look what it says in verse 15. Then he said to him, come home with me and eat bread. Now let's pause there for a second. Remember that Jeroboam offered to have a meal with this guy and the prophet from Judah said, I can't. It was commanded me by the Lord not to return the way that I came, not to eat bread, not to drink, not even stay overnight. I just came to prophesy, do this work of God and go home. That was what God commanded me to do. So now the prophet offers him the same option that Jeroboam offered him. Come home with me to eat bread. And he said, I may not return to you. Now he's, again, he's very familiar with what God said. I may not return with you or go in with you. Neither will I eat bread or drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water there nor return by the way you've came. And he said to him, I am also a prophet as you are. And an angel, notice this little phrase right here. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord saying, bring him back with you into your house that he may eat bread and drink water. You know what that is? That's the Lord told me to tell you. He's literally doing that right here to the old prophet. The Lord, I know you heard that's what the Lord said, but the Lord told me to tell you. <laughs> but he lied to him, the scripture says in verse 19. So he went back with him and he ate bread in his house and drank water. The Lord, sorry, the Lord told me to tell you. Oh, be careful, friends, of this phrase. And it is a popular one in the spiritual, not religious crowd. Self-appointed gurus. Remember, one of the hallmarks of Jeroboam's kingdom is that he made anyone who wanted to be a priest. And that was not to be in Israel. The priests were to come from the specific tribe of Levi and the specific family of Aaron. And so here we have this, everybody's their own spiritual guru. Everyone's their own spiritual leader. Everyone can pick and choose what they want to believe and be their own, you know, advocate for God and all that kind of stuff. And now we can also be self-appointed gurus who say, the Lord told me to tell you. This is a, again, this is a fruit of a spiritual confusion that comes upon a nation as it decays spiritually before God. Okay. We got to continue or I'll never get done. So let's go on to verse 20. So he goes home, he says, and they sat at the table. And uh, all we need to know about this word, the table means that uh, is a good chance that the guy was rich. So this prophet may have allured him with his riches. We don't know, but they sat at the table. The word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. Now, this guy who lied is now and has tricked the true prophet from Judah into coming into his home. Now he gets the word Lord. This is why this passage is confusing. And he cried to the man of God who came from Judah. Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the command that the Lord your God commanded you, but have come back and have eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said you eat no bread and drink no water. Your body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. And after he had eaten bread and drunk, he sat on the donkey for the prophet whom he had brought back. And I know that some of you are like, what on earth? This is so confusing. Who is the true man of God? <laughs> and this is exactly the problem with the spiritual condition of our country and the spiritual condition of Israel and in this century. But when everybody is a spiritual guru, we really don't know who is the spiritual truth. Like who's, who's presenting spiritual truth. <clears throat> and God can speak through false prophets. And he does. I wouldn't even call this guy a false prophet. He lied and he tricked this guy to get in to his house. 
Maybe because he envied him. He saw the miraculous sign. He heard of his boldness. He saw that Jeroboam liked him. I don't know whatever self-serving endeavor was under the surface there, but whatever it was, God now speaks through this guy to his true prophet and says, now I'm going to bring judgment upon you because you did not what? You did not obey the word that I gave you. There's a point to be made here. We're going to get to it. It's a very important point, but let's finish the story first. And as he went away, a lion met him. This is the true prophet from Judah. A lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown in the road and the donkey stood beside it. The lion also stood beside the body and behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown in the road and the lion standing by the body. And uh, they came and told it in the city where the old prophet lived. And when the prophet who had brought him back from the way heard of it, he said, it is the man of God who disobeyed the word of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has given him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him according to the word of the Lord, the word that the Lord spoke to him. And he said to his son, saddle the donkey for me. And they saddled it. And uh, let's just continue. It says, verse 28, and he went and found his body thrown in the road and the donkey and the lion standing beside the body. Now notice this. The scripture wants us to, when scripture repeats in the Hebrew text, pay attention. For, for like the third time we're told the lion had not eaten the body or torn the, don or torn the donkey. Friends, lions do not give up. <laughs> lions do not give up free food. There's a, there's a donkey just sitting there and a human body just laying there dead. And the lion is just chilling. Why? Well, we're meant to see that this was an act of God's judgment. This was not just some natural phenomenon. This was not a mistake or an accident. This was God brought judgment. And by the way, he came from Judah. And remember, Jesus is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is God's judgment on this rebellious pro this prophet who had been used by God and now has been judged by God. Verse 29, and the prophet took up the body of the man of God and laid it on the donkey and brought it back to the city to mourn and bury him. And he laid the body in his own grave and they mourned over him saying, alas, my brother. Okay, let me just pause here for a second. Again, one of the big confusions about this text is you've got this prophet who's mightily used and then he does really well avoiding Jeroboam's um, uh, offer to go and dine with him. But then he fails here when this other self-appointed prophet says, come and listen, uh, come and stay with me because the Lord told me to tell you to come and stay with me. And you see the failure of this mighty man of God. Can I just speak for one second to those of you who have experienced or seen the failure of spiritual leaders who led you in the past? And you think, does that mean that what happened to me under that leader is null and void? No, it doesn't mean that at all. And this is the proof text for that. Look, many of God's best men and women have failed. Many of God's best leaders in the church have failed. In fact, every church leader will fail in something. It's just the order of magnitude that they fail at, right? So you're going to be failed by men who lead you, pastors, priests, bishops, you know, self-appointed prophets, disciplers, whatever you want to say. Don't think that just because they failed, that kind of eradicates everything that they were to you and did for God, oops, on your behalf, men, men fail. This prophet failed. David failed. Moses failed. Noah failed. People fail. When our spiritual leaders fail, and, you know, I'm not saying that they are all going to have horrible failures, but when they fail, it's a reminder that they're not the Savior. They're pointing to the Savior. So ultimately, they will fail, but God never fails. That's really a very... Uh, mature way to see the spiritual, the failures of your spiritual leaders. Okay. Verse 31. 
And after he had buried him, he said to his sons, when I die, look at the request, so cool. When I die, bury me. Where? In the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying that he called out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places that are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. This is a very interesting text. And there is a beautiful hint of the gospel right here. So how does this prophet end up dead? Remember, he was tricked by this false prophet. I wouldn't say, I keep saying false prophet. It doesn't say he's a false prophet. He was lied to by this prophet. And he, because he listened to the lies of the prophet, he dies. So you could say that this bad prophet, let's not say false, let's say bad prophet, this lying prophet led to the death of the true prophet. And when he is buried in the grave, the bad prophet says to his sons, when I die, bury me next to him. I want my bones to be laid by his bones. Here, here's what you're seeing. I want to identify in death with this dead prophet because I know he spoke the word of the Lord. Okay, this is so good. This is so good because later, 300 years later, when Josiah shows up and starts to reform the nation of Israel and does what the prophet predicted in 1 Kings chapter 13, you have to wait until 2 Kings chapter 23, Josiah is born of the line of David and he destroys all these altars that Jeroboam erects in the Northern Kingdom. And then it says in verse 17, uh, Jer- Josiah is in the midst of the reforms. It says, and then he said, what is this monument that I see in the men of the city told him it is the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and predicted these things that you have done against the altar of Bethel. And Josiah said, let him be, let no man move his bones. So they let his bones alone with the bones of the prophet who would come out of Samaria. So what was the guy, what was the prophet in Samaria? What did he want? He knew that if he had identified in death with the true prophet of God from Judah, that he also would be spared. Hello. That's the gospel. Are you hearing this? This is so cool. I love, I love it when we find Jesus on every page, the gospel on every page. So the true prophet died because the bad prophet lied. And yet the bad prophet is saved by the death of the true prophet. Do I have to spell it out for you? They brought false charges against the true prophet, Jesus Christ, the true son of God. And because they brought false, prophet, false accusations, because they lied, Jesus died. Of course, Jesus laid down his life. I know, I know. Theologically, no man takes his life. Jesus laid it down. But it was all in accordance with the hands of wicked men. The willful decisions of wicked men caused the death of Jesus. And yet, even those who put him to death could be saved if they identified with him in death. Woo, my friends, ladies and gentlemen, how are you going to be buried? Are you going to be buried in your own righteousness or are you going to be buried? in the righteousness of Christ. Because if you are buried in your own righteousness, which is what the spiritual, not religious crowd can give you, your own righteousness, your own feelings, your own experience, your own, I don't know what, your own ideas, you will not rise again to new life in heaven. You will be condemned eternally. But if you are buried in identification with Christ, the Bible says you will be raised with him. He is the first fruit. And if he was raised, we are raised. And his resurrection is the guarantee, the down payment of our resurrection. I mean, this is the gospel. And there is coming a final judgment on the world. And you want to be found in Christ so that the judgment of the world passes over you because it was placed on Jesus Christ for you. And yes, you and your lying little heart was the reason why Jesus had to die. Your lies caused Jesus to die. He he is your payment for your sin. But you can identify with him and be raised to life. 
and freed from it. Amen. Oh, I love when we see the gospel on the page of scripture, don't you? So let's take a look at these last two verses, verses 33 to 34, because this is the commentary of the whole chapter. And we're going to get it now if we read these last two verses and see what was the reason for this whole story. It says this, after this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way. What evil way? Look at what the evil way is being described, but made priests for the high places again from among all the people. Remember, that was what it was listed in chapter 12. It is being redone, reinitiated in chapter 13, even after the judgment of this prophet and the false prophet or the bad prophet. And it says this, any who would, in other words, anyone who wanted to be a spiritual leader, Jeroboam ordained to be priest of the high places. And this thing became a sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off and destroy it from the face of the earth. Remember what I said, self-made, self-serving religion is doomed to fail. And notice that even after all Jeroboam sees, the judgment of God, the, the destruction of his altar, this prophet who comes and his arm is paralyzed or you know, caused to, to spasm and he cannot even use it and he gets healed. Even after all that, Jeroboam's like, I'm gonna do what I want. Which just tells me this, and I want you to hear me say it, this self-made spiritual stuff is literally a bondage that we cannot break out of. It's, it's like... It's like a prison. It's like a spiritual prison. This is why you can tell people again and again and again who are spiritual, not religious, that Jesus is the only way and you need Christ and Christ is the truth and Christ is the way and the life. They'll say, because mm, there there's a spiritual bondage to this. And by the way, it also shows us this text that miracles do not bring conviction. They do not produce saving faith. People saw the miracles of Jesus and they still rejected him. In fact, they only wanted the miracles to happen. Which again makes us wonder, well, why am I following Jesus? Am I following Jesus because of him? Because he is the truth. Because his truth is what I need, what heals me, what makes me new and changes me. Or am I following Jesus for what I can get out of him? Jeroboam was a superficial, self-appointed spiritual guru for his own glory. And he never repented. Be careful of the spiritual, not religious crowd because it is a bondage that many, many people are stuck in and they cannot break out of. But the gospel... And the gospel alone breaks us free from that nonsense. Okay, let's tap into truth. Okay, so we've been talking about this ad nauseum. Let's just close it out with just a reminder. I'm talking about the danger of being spiritual and not religious. Anyone can claim to speak for God, and most people actually do. <laughs> Oprah, Oprah says she, she, she speaks for God, right? <clears throat> Self-appointed leaders and preachers and teachers on the, on the television, on the internet, claim to speak for God. But, but you have to be careful because you have to ask yourself, is this person claiming to speak for God, speaking in accordance with the truth? And this is why I'm a big believer in the local church. Look, the local church is the way, the method and means by which God shapes your life and challenges your life and grows your life in Christ. You need to have in-person accountability with people who submit themselves to the book. The book is the word of God. And the question of the, of the spiritual, not religious crowd is this, what spirit are you following? Like when you create your own self-serving spirituality, you're really just doing what you want. How are you different from a pagan? How are you different from a non-believer? If you're doing exactly what you feel is right, spiritually speaking, and you're calling yourself a Christian, how are you not a pagan? Because that's exactly what pagans do. Pagans do whatever they want. Christians do whatever God wants. Let me hear that again. Pagans do whatever they want. Christians do what God wants. 
And again, back to my problems that I brought up earlier, you really don't know what you want. You don't know what's ahead that's going to change what you want. You don't know what's ultimately good for you so that you should want it. The good news of the gospel is that God knows us exactly for who we are really, that he knows the end from the beginning. He's the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is the eternal one. We are his idea. He is not our idea. And he is the ultimate authority over how we should live. He made us. He knows what's best for us. And he's got the days of our lives mapped out for us. That is our truth. And that is why, that is why you have to submit yourself to a local body of believers who follow the word of God as the ultimate final authority in life, period, period. The word of God, this is what this text is teaching us. The word of God is the final authority over all other authorities. This is really the, the heart of 1 Kings chapter 13. That God is speaking to a generation that wants to do whatever they see fit spiritually and they want to follow their own heart and their own experience and their own feelings. No, no, no. God's word is the final authority. And how does, God, how does God teach this to us? Well, number one, the word of the Lord strikes Jeroboam and his false religious system. So the king is subject to the word of the Lord. The political power players of the day, even if it looks like they're getting away with it, ultimately their day will come, their judgment will come. God's word is in authority over the constitution of the United States, over the president of the United States, over the senators and legislators of the, of the United States. God's word is over that. So if you are trying to get along as being a good American, but not a good Christian, something is wrong. Something is amiss. You have made, you have functionally made the government of the United States your savior. And they are horrible saviors. And they are not to be trusted when they do not obey the word of the Lord. Okay? The word of the Lord, number two, causes the true prophet from Judah to be killed when he disobeyed it. Even the prophet that was sent by God from Judah dies because he doesn't submit to the word of the Lord. He disobeyed. The point is, is that God is going to hold us accountable to the word, not to people's opinions, and especially not to our own hearts, feelings, or experiences. And then thirdly, the word of the Lord comes through even a false prophet to rebuke the failure of the true prophet. <laughs> you know, think, think about this. Again, there it is. False prophet. I even put it in my notes. I'm sorry. The bad prophet. The, the, the bad prophet is used to rebuke the true prophet through the word of the Lord. Fundamentally, here's the point. God's word does not change. God's word does not change. I don't care what the country is doing. I don't care what, I don't know, your spiritual guru from your 12 year on in life was telling you, I, I don't care what your youth pastor said. I don't care what your old church said. I don't care if you heard it from five people on TV. I don't care if you read it in a book. I don't care if you really, 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 really believe it because when you had the thought come to you, the moon shined on you in just the right way. And it was like a God moment. And it all, oh, I don't care how you feel about it. Friends, if it's not what God said, it's not true. It's not true. No. No. Uh, two plus two equals four is not in the Bible. Doesn't make it untrue. <laughs> there is natural law. There is natural truth, right? But when it comes to the approach of our lives to the spiritual realm, to our righteousness, to who we are, to sin and truth, God's word is the final authority and is overall. Remember when Paul is writing to the Galatians, this fabulous book written to 
people who were abandoning the true gospel and going back to Judaism for their own salvation. They would say, well, you got to believe in Jesus, but you also have to obey the law of Moses. And there were some, they were called Judaizers. These were false leaders who were Judaizing the church. They were making them follow the Jewish structure of the feast days and the sacrifices and all those things and get circumcised and then believe in Jesus. And then you get saved. Paul says, no, that's the false gospel. And I love what he says in Galatians chapter one, verse eight, listen to this man who is supremely used by God, but ultimately completely under the authority of the word of God, particularly the once for all given gospel. He says in Galatians chapter one, verse eight, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Look what Paul says. Even if I say something, that's not the gospel. Let me be accursed. If anybody tells you something that is not in this book, in other words, if anybody tells you something that is not in the gospel, let them be accursed. I don't care if they went to seminary. I don't care if they have a hundred thousand member church. I don't care if it's your future you telling you, well, I just kind of moved past the simple gospel and I kind of embraced this kind of like hodgepodge view of spirituality. I don't even care if it's your future you. If it's not God's truth, it's not truth, which blows away the modern mantra of it's my truth blows away the modern mantra of, well, I just believe this way because of my upbringing and that's the story and that's my life and that's my narrative and that's how I, you know, you've got to understand. And this is what our culture does. The spiritual, not religious crowd elevates my story over his story. And that's why it's called actually history, not you-story, right? That's why it's called history, not you-story, because it's not you. Your story, as valid as it might be, as hurtful or happy or triumphal or victorious or damaging as your story might be, ultimately your story is subservient, subservient to his story. And if you find your story in his story, your story will be used for his glory. And you must ask yourself, who are the people that I may be tempted to listen to that are offering me these alternatives that I need to be more discerning about? Is it a mom? Is it a father? Is it a spiritual guru, leader, self-appointed prophet, television evangelist, Someone that I, I say, okay, this is the person I'm going to follow. No, no, ultimately, the word of God is the authority. Uh, Hebrews chapter four, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of our soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Friends, another reminder, and I've said it before, but I just wanted to say it again. When godly leaders fail, we must remember God's word is our ultimate hope. You know, I, I pray that I don't fail you, <laughs> but, but I'm a human. And if I do fail you, and I, I really don't want to, please, please pray for me that I won't fail because I need God's grace to sustain me. I need the Holy Spirit to convict, convict me and change me and make me more and more like Jesus. But nonetheless, I am asking you to trust in God's word, not me. So summing all this up, let's wrap this up, this uh, episode, Christianity on my own terms. Number one, it's not novel or new. Like you're not being like unique. This is as old as the Garden of Eden. Uh, number two, it serves only your personal ambitions. Number three, it's rooted in our fear or honor of people rather than God. Number four, it does not save. And number five, it leads to death. That's Christianity on your own terms. That's spiritual, not religious. What is our answer? Very simple. Old school religion, old school Christianity, repent, repent, confess your culpability in Christ's death. Jesus died for me. Then identify with God's chosen one, Jesus Christ, God's true prophet, and be buried with him in baptism so that you may rise with him out of the waters and into new life. 
And remember, he does save you from death. Th those are the true answers to the spirit of our age, the spiritual, not religious mantras of our culture, the false gospels that are popping up everywhere. There's only one truth. There's only one savior. There's only one Lord. There's only one faith. There's only one baptism. There's only one body. And that is the body of Christ. Thanks for joining me guys here on the channel. I always say if it helps support the channel, if it doesn't help, I'm sorry, I'll do better next week. But if it does help you support through the cash app, cash app, cash tag Tim Hatch live or timhatchlive.com slash support. Thank you for your support. It is never too early to get your 10 questions in on the first Thursday of the month. Ask at timhatchlive.com and then do me the solid favor because this always helps the channel. Like this video. Do it now. Go ahead. Do it. Press it. Press it. <laughs> Share the content on your social media or subscribe to the channel. If you do all three, uh, there's a special place for you in heaven. Not really, but sometimes leaders fail. And I just failed by saying that. <laughs> okay, everybody, God bless you. Have a great night. It was good to be with you. Good to have fun with you. I will see you next Tuesday night for the deep end. <laughs>